Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. What I'd like you to do to start off this morning is uh, close your eyes for just a moment. And I want you to picture in your mind um, an experience or, or a moment when you, um, you were just awed by the beauty or the power of nature. Might have been Grand Canyon, Yosemite, whatever. Um, but just a time, and just kind of picture that. Try and relive that moment. Um, just think about it for a moment. Okay, so you can open your eyes, because we did this because we're launching a new series today, and we're calling it God is Great, and we're beginning at the beginning, which is creation. Um, we believe that all of creation speaks of its creator. Um, look at this, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into the earth, their words to the end of the world. I think every one of us in this room has had one of those breathtaking um, beauty of nature um, times. And I had you to to think about it. Now, I'm going to tell you mine. Uh, One of mine is there is nothing to me more beautiful, more beautiful than a sunset that is watched from Kahanapali Beach on Maui, okay? (laughs) It is like the most gorgeous sunsets I've ever seen. I just love them. So that's mine. Um, Turn to the person next to you. Tell them. I'm going to give you 10 seconds each, okay? So 10 seconds to tell yours, 10 seconds for the other person to tell theirs. Go. All right, switch. If you haven't yet. All right. I believe, I believe one of our greatest problems is our small picture of God. Our small view of God. Um, I think we tend to think of God as being just a little bit bigger, a little bit better, um, a little bit smarter or, or a little bit stronger than we think of ourselves. You know, we kind of, I think sometimes we carry around this picture that God is just kind of a, a supersized version of who we are. And He is much, much greater than that. We have an inadequate understanding of God. And this morning we're going to talk about creation. Now, I'm, I'm going to say up front, okay, I feel absolutely inadequate because how in the world do you describe an indescribable God? Okay, I, this is going to be impossible for me. What I hope to do is as we look at creation and just some of the things about creation and, and what Genesis 1 has to say about it, and what Psalms has to say about it, understanding that creation tells us about our creator. And more importantly, not just what it tells us about him, but how we're supposed to respond to him. How do, how do you relate to him um, in that way? And there's two books that I've really used as great resources I want to just tell you about. Um, the one is by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. Excellent book, excellent book. Just kind of goes um, through and just tells why we believe what we believe and why there's basis for that. Um, and then the other one is by Marva Dawn. It, the name of the book is In the Beginning, God. And uh, both of them are excellent books. So um, I'm going to just, if you want them there, actually, we got them at the uh, resource desk and you can uh, get one of them today. Um, so we're going to do this morning, take a look at creation. What does it tell us about our God? Because it tells us a lot. I think one of the things is creation tells us God is incredibly great. 
incredibly great. Understand something. The Bible is all about God. Now, that probably seems like a, you know, of course, we all know. But here's the problem. I think too often we read the Bible as if it's about us. Now, yeah, we're taught to read what does it mean, what does it say, what does it mean to me, how do I apply it to my life, and that's all good stuff. But understand, the Bible is a book about God. The Bible tells God's story from the get-go. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, if you go through chapter 1, God's name comes up over 30 times, which is a pretty good hint about what this book's going to be about. And how we ought to read it. And how we ought to understand it. It is not a science textbook. It is not a science textbook. And I say that because um, I think there's this this assumption that that science and faith are at odds with each other. That science and faith um, are incompatible. They butt heads. That you can't have one or the other. You can't have one. You can't have them both. You've got to have one or the other. You're either a person of of science or you're a person of faith. You can't be. And that just isn't true. A lot of that comes from our own misunderstanding and misreading of Scripture. It is not a science textbook. Now, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was written by a real person to a real audience in a real context to answer some very real questions. And the questions are not what, how, and when. The questions that the Bible addresses are the deeper questions, the who and the why. Who and why? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is about God's glory. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. We have, I think, too often misread Scripture. Go back a few years, 1600s. A guy named Galileo, after um, reading some of the findings of Copernicus, published, um, put forth a, a, a belief that maybe, maybe everything does not revolve around the earth. Maybe everything actually revolves around the sun. You know what his biggest critics were? You know what was the biggest, you know, came down on him the hardest? The church. The Bible says, the earth's the center. It's the God set the foundations. Everything revolves around the earth. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and that misreading of scripture just caused all kinds of havoc. And I think sometimes our biggest problem is that we misread scripture. It's not a science textbook. But I do believe that the vastness and the complexity of our universe, of all creation, points to a creator. One of the greatest discoveries and contributions to science in the 20th century, I believe, was um, putting forth the the Big Bang model of the universe. That that science has actually um, discovered that, that our universe seems to be expanding and expanding at an increasing rate that at one time... All of the universe was in a very, very tight, condensed place. And from that moment, it all went forward and is continuing to expand to this day. It's called the Big Bang Theory. The thing with it is, who started the bang? <laughs> you know, there's, okay, we know everything that, everything that exists, everything that happens, happens because it was caused. Okay? There's a cause for everything in our universe. So, who caused the Big Bang? See, there's somewhere where, where if something is created, if something is, is going, if something is happening, it has to have a cause outside itself. Or as Tim Keller puts it, why is there something rather than nothing? 
Where did the something come from? See, evolution talks about how one thing can transform into another or how, you know, selection of the survival of the fittest and, you know, all that stuff, how, you know, things can progress. But where does it start? There's got to be a starting point. Where did the first stuff come from? Or the old joke. Maybe you've heard it. The scientists went, they, they mapped the gene, human genome and came up with them. They went to God and they said, we don't need you anymore. We know how to create life. We got it all together. We've got it all mapped out. We don't need you anymore. And God said, okay, well, let's have a contest. Okay? We'll both create a human being. And so the scientist said, great. So he reached down to pick up some sand. He goes, oh, no, no. You get your own dirt. Where did it come from? Where did it start? See, I think sometimes we think smart people can't believe in God. But if you ponder the universe, you realize it is so immense, it is so vast, and it has continued to expand. Where did it find its beginning? Got a video I want to show you. Just to kind of open your minds a little bit. I wish, I wish we had like, because this thing it won't do it justice. I wish we had the IMAX, you know, the big screen, the whole thing. Because then you could really kind of take it in 3D glasses the whole bit. We don't. But just watch this. You'll get a picture of it. That little trip we took in three minutes (laughs) would take forever. The nearest star, the nearest star to us, and our sun, by the way, is a very small star in comparison. The nearest star to us is 4.35 light years away. That's the closest star. Now, if you want to get an idea what that looks like, our fastest space probes that we have now, our fastest ones would take 60 thousand years just to reach it and that's the nearest star it is huge it is vast if that doesn't leave you with a sense of awe to understand that our god created all that and he stands beyond it speaks to a creator where did it have its beginning Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. His creation speaks of him as a creator, and he is a great, great, great creator. How do you respond to that? I can think of only one, only one response. Absolute, reverent worship. Worship is the only response. And and by the way, the book of Genesis carries with it a rhythm of worship. It's almost liturgical. Um, You find over and over this repeated phrase, Genesis 1. We're going to just look at verses 9 and 10. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. There is the repeat 
of that, those three terms over and over and over again. They, they, are, they are poetry. It's, a, it's an expression of worship. It carries a rhythm of worship. Look at Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9. Let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of Him. For when He spoke, the world began. It appeared at His command. He just spoke. And it was so. And it was good. The only response to that is worship. Now let me tell you, folks. I think we have lost some of that awe. I really do. Um, And I think part of it has to do with God has made himself so accessible and so available and so personal to us by what he did through Jesus Christ on the cross. I think because of that, um, it's almost become so familiar, we forget how great he is. We gather together on a Sunday morning to worship God. But worship is far greater than a half hour or an hour on a Sunday morning. And, and when we gather together, you know, we have no dress code around here. Just look around. You can tell that, okay? Because um, we, we want people to be able to come as you are. But, and, and that whole casual feeling, please don't misunderstand. Do not be casual in worship. Do not. Just because we provide a casual atmosphere, do not be casual in your worship. And let me just say something, and this isn't in my notes, but I'm just going to harp a little bit. For you who don't get here on time, That's just like saying to God, I'm sorry, you're not my worth getting up on time. I'm sorry, I had other things to do this morning. I couldn't make it on time. I'm sorry, God. I'd really like to be there and worship with your people, but I got other things I got to take care of this morning. Please. Please. How can we be so casual to such a huge, fast, incredible God? How can we? I don't understand that. He demands... Praise and glory, not because he, he's got an inferiority complex, but because there is something about praise and worship to something that is greater than us that lifts our own spirits. And it goes with us when we go out the door. And by the way, if you, if you want a, a class to sign up for, for Northgate U, sign up for the Worship 101. Because we're going to talk about worship. Brian's going to talk about worship being more than just singing songs. Okay? And... and That's all I'm going to do. (laughs) Moving on. Not only is he great, but creation also tells us he is supremely good. Supremely good. God's goodness is reflected in a universe that sustains life. Do you know... There are an incredible number of factors and and conditions are absolutely necessary for life to be sustained, for life to even begin. You know, it doesn't just, it it is an incredibly, in fact, some physicists call it, it the the whole, whole universe needs to be finely tuned to create and allow for the sustaining of life. It's called the anthropic principle. From anthropos, meaning man, mankind. That there is something about the universe that says it is finely tuned. Where we live on this planet, in this place, in this cosmos, is so finely tuned. It's what Tim Keller calls the cosmic welcome mat. (laughs) We live in a place that sustains life. A couple examples of this. 
Our solar system, just where our solar system's place is in the galaxy, if it were any closer to the center of the galaxy or any further out on, on one of the arms of it, our planet would be so devastated by cosmic radiation, we would not survive. Our solar system is set in just the right place, in just the right universe. And there's some very unique properties about our planet. Water. The unique properties of water. You know, when water freezes, when it gets cold, and when it freezes, it, it condenses in such a way that it causes it to float. Which is why in the winter, when rivers and lakes freeze over, fish still live beneath the surface. Because if it didn't, if it all froze in the same, at the same time, they'd be killed. The Earth's atmosphere, if there was too much of just any, of any one of the gases that make up our, our atmosphere... Um, our planet would suffer runaway greenhouse gas effect. We, we would be, the greenhouse effect, we would be dead. We would die. Do you know that the precise orbit of the earth, its distance from the sun, the existence of the moon, the size that it is, the distance from the earth that it is, and that our earth is tilted on an axis precisely at 23.5 degrees, keeps our earth in a particular zone, which it is not too hot and not too cold, it is just right. And you know what physicists call that? The Goldilocks zone. <laughs> there is something about our universe and our world that sustains life. That is a sign of the goodness of God. And not only that, but, but nature, there is a regularity to nature. There is a consistency. There is an orderliness. There is a predictability, which, by the way, makes the scientific method possible. Because water always freezes at the same temperature every time. It always boils at the same temperature every time. That our world revolves around the sun the same amount of time every time. It, it is regular. It, it is consistent. It is so predictable that science can watch over and over and over the repeat of it to deduce what our understanding is. And that our vegetation and our animals and our, and our being, we reproduce according to our own kind. Now, that might not think, seem like a really big thing to you, but, but think about this, okay? What if apple trees produced asparagus one year and then the next year, oranges, you know, and then the next year, pears, and then Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> apple trees always produce apples. Cows always give birth to cows. They don't give birth to coyotes. That would not work. There is something in the, in the, in the DNA of every being that guarantees that what it produces will be of its own kind. And God created that. Look at this. Genesis 1, uh, verse, verse 12. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And the Lord saw that it was good. Verse 25. God made the wild animals according to their kinds the livestock according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. It is consistent. It is good. In fact, it is so good that when he finished it all, he said, very good. 
very good. How do you respond to such a good God? To me, I think the only valid response to that is a humble obedience. To know that God has demonstrated His truth, His trustworthiness, His goodness. He has revealed Himself to be a God who cares. In fact, look at this next verse. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist says, when I look at all creation, why do you care about us? Why do you bother with humanity? What makes you give us special attention? Because he is a good and a trustworthy and a caring God. And yet, knowing all those things, I question him. I argue with him sometimes. I doubt him. I complain to him. I worry. I disobey and make excuses for my disobedience. When all that God has given us is for our own good. His law, His commands, His precepts, His principles, His instructions are all for our good. Psalm 19. The ordinance of the Lord are sure. All of them are righteous. By keeping them, your servant, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The psalmist is saying, everything that you have put in place and every way that you have instructed us and commanded us is good for us. It's for our own good. And yet we act so often like two-year-olds. We know better. I'm not listening to mama. See, obedience itself is an act of worship. And the last one, I think creation tells us that God is infinitely merciful and gracious. He is full of mercy and grace. Of all creation, of all creation, He made human beings unique. Talked earlier about the repeat. God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. And then the rhythm breaks. And it's almost like we're getting a chance to eavesdrop on this internal conversation God has. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. He's doing something different here. Now, those who don't believe in creation, those who don't believe in God, would tell you that you are only a lump of carbon. That's all you are. A random collection of molecules. That's what you are. Nothing special, just an accident, an accumulation of cosmic dust. Your existence, your life has no significance, no meaning, no purpose, but have a nice life anyway. (laughs) When Scripture tells us we are created in His image for His divine purposes, so God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. The way that He created us in His image, for a relationship, for a connection, for fellowship with Him. That is an act of God's grace. That He gave us the ability to reason, 
to form thoughts and opinions. And yes, to have the freedom of choice. And there's the rub. Because given the choice, we chose disobedience. We chose disobedience. It's interesting that the serpent's temptation to eat of the fruit questions everything about God. Do you ever look at that? Do you ever notice that? How Satan goes about this? He questions God's truthfulness. Did God really say, you will not surely die? He questions whether God would tell the truth or not. Whether God is truly good. He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. God's keeping stuff from you. And he knows if you eat of this fruit, then you're going to get the good stuff. And he's not good. He's trying to keep you down. And to diminish his greatness. He knows that if you eat of the fruit, you will be like him. Questioning and diminishing everything that God in his creation has demonstrated. And we bit. Every one of us in our own way. We bit. And there is something about sin that shrinks God in our eyes. We make him less than he is. We are created in God's image, but the image has been damaged. That's what scripture tells us. It's been damaged, it's been tarnished, it's been marred. Created in his image, but it's not as it should be. Fortunately, God doesn't give up on us. And the rest of Scripture tells us that God continued to pursue us. He gave his law so that we would know how to, how to live in relationship to him. He spoke through prophets so that we would turn back to him. And finally, he came himself, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who left all of the deity and all the rights and privileges and power that come with it and made himself a man. And being found a man, he made himself a servant. A servant to death. So that we could be restored to what we were created to be. So that we could live in that relationship with him. Which, if I could put one more plug in, if you want an overview of the story of God, starting point is a great class. If you want to see how this whole story hangs together, it's a great class for you. Just a little side of it. How do you respond? I think there's only one response to a God of mercy and grace, and that's to give up control, full surrender, realizing, God, I'm not as great as I think I am, and I'm certainly not as good as I might have tried to appear to be. I need your grace. Apostle Paul spoke about it in Athens. It's recorded in Acts 17. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. See, Genesis tells us that there is only one God. 
creator of all things, heaven and earth. And creation, his creation is good, but it is not God. The stars do not determine your destiny, no matter what day you were born on. And the sun gives light and heat and warmth, but it is not to be worshipped, and neither is the earth. Only God is to be worshipped. That human beings are far more than material. That each of us has a soul. That there's a spiritual dimension to how God created us. But something has gone wrong. That's what the rest of Scripture tells us. Something has gone wrong. And we cannot save ourselves. That God is our only hope. Our only hope to set it right. Because we cannot do it on our own. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.